I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Eat Sleep Work Repeat, a weekly podcast on happiness and work culture. Hello there, it's Bruce Daisley. Sorry there wasn't an episode last week, and it was fully my intention to do one. I was away, I was I was away in Beirut, actually, when I first told my dad I was going to, to Beirut. He laughed hysterically for uh, about a minute. He has been known to respond like that when I've been in boots. But yeah, I was in Beirut last week. I was staying, if you're interested, I was staying in the Smallville Hotel in Badaro. Fantastic, very reasonably priced, brilliant hotel, and of course... It's become my favourite hotel based on a 2000 TV franchise, which I know is going to be tough for fans of the Dawson's Creek in Hemel Hempstead to hear. Great time in Beirut. Would strongly recommend it for traffic enthusiasts. It was just too noisy. I tried to record. It was just too noisy last week. So there you go. A few things. If you're on the new Apple Podcasts app, and that app's good, isn't it? It's massively improved. If you're on that and uh, you're listening there, if you if you see the, the tab that says See More Episodes, if you click on that, slide down the page, go on, do it now, do it now, and you'll see uh, the opportunity to give a star rating. I consider it like the Uber for the ears, but where no one gets hurt. So if you could give us five stars there, it'd be greatly appreciated. I've had a, a few conversations in the last week where largely people have been saying to me, oh, look, but, you know, the thing is these enlightened jobs and unenlightened jobs. And my sister was saying to me, you know, a lot of people working in a, a work environment where they're not allowed to use Facebook. They're not allowed to. They're only allowed to use Google for two hours a day. And all of the stuff that you're talking about here, Bruce, it's all very nice, but it's sort of like first world problems. It's like affluenza. It's just, you know, the, the sort of the, the luxuries of the super fortunate. And look, when we created the New Work Manifesto, myself and Sutard were thinking about those things. There's things in that manifesto, and you'll find it on the website, eatsleepworkrepeat.fm. There's things in that manifesto which are very much intended for anyone to do. You know, things like take back your lunch, things like uh, operating a, a digital Sabbath at the weekend, optimising for laughing in an office. I don't think any of those things are the reserve of... Uh, those who've got a wonderful job in an, an enlightened company. However, if you do have a perspective on those jobs, I'd love to hear from you. I was chatting to someone who worked at an insurance company two weeks ago, and she was saying how the insurance sector had been shaken up by a company that had, had radically changed their own working practices. Look, I think this can happen anywhere, but I want to hear your views. Here's what we've got coming up. 
In two weeks' time, I'm running an event which is called Culture 2.0, and I'm doing that with Sue Todd. So some of the episodes, probably through uh, November and December, will be uh, transcripts and and shows recorded there. So uh, some good content coming there. What you're going to find over the next few weeks is some of the continuing journey into the science and the, the neuroscience of work culture and uh, really sort of an interesting exploration of the brain. And, and obviously the, the brain is our tool of work. And so just optimising the brain seems to really critical. And so uh, you're going to hear from Emma Seppala, who's uh, a professor at Stanford University. You're going to hear from Dan Cable, who is from London Business School. And we've just got a whole load of episodes where we're going to be exploring the work of people like Jack Pansep, Barbara Fredrickson. Uh, We're just exploring the sort of the neuroscience of of how our minds work. So that's coming up. Today's episode I've actually brought forward. I've brought it forward because since I read Cal Newport's Deep Work, I've really thought about it continuously. And so consequently, based on that, I just thought it'd it'd be worth having this as a context for the rest of the show. In, in the preview episode two weeks ago, I shared the fact that Cal Newport says that we'll look at this time in history and we'll laugh at how spectacularly unproductive it was. And as I mentioned in the, in the first episode of series two, there's been something called the productivity paradox in the last few years where output, you know, the, the, the amount that all of us produce hasn't gone up. So we're working harder to no avail. Cal is pretty clear that there's a lot of enemies to getting things done. Meetings, interruptions, emails. I'm not sure that bosses set out to create these things, but in an environment where all of us have got targets, all of us have got objectives, bosses' fear often permeates the behaviours that we're expected to do. You know, when a boss says, where is everyone? It's not because they're just a, a malign individual, desperate to have it, everyone in front of them, but it's often their own fear that they're expected to deliver. And if their team appear like they're slacking, then actually that's going to prevent the boss. Fear permeates the office far more than we think. It's back to that episode in season one where Jodie Thompson from Work Sucks, she said that, you know, once you take away the sludging, the sort of the... the the questioning, where were you, where are you, where are you going, then actually you can get on with the, the truth, the, the true substance of work. As Cal Newport says, no one is having these discussions. So he said pretty much when it comes to sort of deep work, his thoughts, even though you're going to listen to them and go, yeah, to some extent, that's logical. They're heretical based on what's happening right now. We, we sort of celebrate this non-science nonsense um, about how work works. So, for example, I saw something Mark Zuckerberg was celebrating their new building and he said, oh, this is the biggest open plan space in the world. And it's weird, isn't it? Because we tell ourselves that, that companies are data-based and evidence-based and, you know, they, they look at the data and things. There's no evidence whatsoever for open plan offices. The worst thing about open plan offices is they're actually less collaborative, they're less discursive. People tend to have fewer chance encounters with other people. Why? Because their head's down with headphones on, trying to combat the noise. So it's fascinating when you hear the people who are who claim to be data-driven say such nonsense about work. Actually, our instincts, our bosses' instincts about work, are as much shaped by what they see in drama and TV as that happens in real life. Most people in in an open-plan environment are sort of battling through these distractions and disruptions, just trying to get things done. We don't look at the evidence of that. 
I mean, have a look at your office today at 3pm. I suspect there'll be a whole load of people frowning into their emails wearing headphones. That's a new office environment. And the intention of the New Work Manifesto is, can we listen to the likes of Cal Newport and help shape a better work? So that's why I'm going into today's episode here. What, what Cal Newport says is he says there's, there's two things important to thrive in today's work environment. The first is to master hard things quickly. Okay. And the second is to produce at an elite level. And if you, can, if you can master things quickly and produce at an elite level, you'll thrive in the modern work environment. He says the challenge of the way that offices are constructed now is that we can't get either of those things done. I mean, it's worth saying Cal is extraordinarily productive. He's, he's written five books. He's uh, a tenured professor at the age of 35, which is a uh, ma- massive achievement. He practices what he preaches. He's, he's a real productivity expert. I think one of the things that you need to have context of is the idea of switching costs. The idea that when we change the activities our brains are working on, it actually slows our brain down. And you hear various things in, in books about that. About it slows your brain down more than two drinks or more than smoking marijuana. Task switching is a bit like global warming. You'll struggle to find a scientist who disagrees with it. Kel's point is that good things in life require focus. Achieving things require focus. Modern offices don't have focus. We need to change them. Right. So far, so clear. The Economist calls called Deep Work the killer app of the knowledge economy. Cal Newport prioritises concentration, prioritises undisturbed thought. I think the reason why this is so brilliant for me and why I've thought about it so much is it gives four methodologies to achieve deep work. And some of them are not going to work for everyone. I suspect your boss won't allow you to go off and live in a log cabin for three months. But there are four methodologies. If you are interested at the end, I've put a transcript to the show on the website. I've also linked to the four methodologies. And there's also a a rather charming video of a guy who tried out the, the four methodologies and he reports back on his success. For me, this is the one of the most usable ways that we can understand how work is going to evolve. As I say, Cal Newport says in 15 years, we won't be working like how we're working now. And I think his approaches are probably the, the closest we've got to imagining the future. Here's Cal. I wonder if we could kick off. We're going to go into the concept of deep work and then how to take advantage of it. But deep work seems to be sort of following very much in the footsteps of the guy who came up with the idea of flow. Mahali Chiksem Mahali. Could you talk through the concept of deep work? A deep work, it's my term for the activity of focusing without distraction on a cognitively demanding task. So it's a sort of a, a, a new term for a very old activity, which is giving something very uh, intense concentration. I like to isolate this activity uh, and say in a knowledge economy in particular, it's actually becoming increasingly valuable for a number of reasons. So this ability to focus intensely is becoming increasingly valuable at the same time that it looks like it's also becoming increasingly rare. So this is sort of the, the core uh, mismatch on, on which my thinking on this topic lies is this idea that we have a skill becoming more valuable at the same time as becoming more rare. That means that if you're one of the few to develop it, you are going to have a, a huge competitive advantage. So uh, I am a big deep work booster. I think the economists use the term deep work is the killer app of the knowledge economy. 
which I think is a great way of summarizing my thinking on it. And you mentioned the fact that it's becoming increasingly scarce. I think one of the things that I found interesting when you were talking through the idea of it in, in your book, you say that shallow work is immensely easy to find ourselves doing. Probably the easiest example to reach for is email or even meetings and email. I just wondered if you could talk through why you, you think we find ourselves working on those shallow concepts and give examples of what you mean by deep work. So for something to count as deep work, it requires intense, unbroken conversation, and it has to be something that is pushing your cognitive capacity towards its limit. So for example, if you're a developer writing computer code, intensely concentrating your code, that's deep work. If you're a writer trying to write something new, that's deep work. If you are uh, a marketer in this sort of quintessential madman scene of staring there and trying to come up with, this is the new branding message, that would be deep work. Trying to come up with a new business strategy that makes sense of complicated metrics and indicators to try to figure out what should our company do doing forward. All of these are examples of deep work. Shallow work, by contrast, we can essentially define as the antonym of deep work. So anything that's not deep work, we can lump into the category of shallow work. So this includes almost anything that doesn't require high skill or deep concentration. So answering emails, building PowerPoint slides, sitting through meetings, moving information back and forth. This is shallow work. My contention is that we are spending way too much time on the shallow work and not nearly enough time on the deep work as we come into this new century, as we, we come into the digital knowledge work era for the first time, we have a mismatch of what we're focusing on. One of the things you mentioned is deep work is going to increase in value. And we hear this continual discussion about automation of jobs, how the easiest jobs are going to be automated. The level of cognitive power that deep work requires means that it's sort of it's going to be the sort of work that's going to have the highest value. Maybe the only sort of work that's enduring. Is that is that right? Right. right. Deep, deep work, work is, is, is you can think of like an insurance, insurance policy for the, the coming, coming age of, of automation. automation. It really gives you two advantages with the changes that are happening in our economy. The first is the better you are at concentrating intensely, the easier and quicker you can learn new and complicated things. So this is going to be vital for staying uh, important and valued in the economy, that you can keep up with the ever-changing systems and ideas. You can see where the value is and where you can jump in and learn those new ideas and systems. If you're comfortable concentrating intensely, you can do that easily. If you're uncomfortable with intense concentration, you're gonna get left behind. The second advantage of deep work is that when you're working with intense concentration, you produce higher quality output in less time than if you instead try to tackle these tasks with less concentration, more disruption, and more uh, distraction. So again, as the economy gets more competitive, as there's gonna be more definitive gap between the winners and losers in the sort of automated high-tech economy, being able to produce at an elite level, which is what deep work allows you to do, is going to be a key competitive advantage. So it's an important skill now that's about to become much more important, especially in knowledge work. I suspect a lot of people, though, are finding themselves with the, the 10 years of email on our phones and 10 years of smartphone and finding our attention is atrophied. So the challenge is sort of to achieve any level of deep work is already difficult, but then add over the complexity of open plan offices and, the, and these things sort of start to become nigh on impossible. You've got some methodologies and you've got some sort of proposed ways to solve that. I wonder if you could delve a bit into the two or three methods that you think can be most easily adapted to modern working environments. Well, it, I mean, it is true, first of all, that the modern working environment is actively hostile to deep work. I, I do want to add the caveat that I think this is going to be, in the long term, a sort of footnote in the evolution of knowledge work. In other words, I think the way that we're approaching knowledge work now, we're going to look back at 
maybe 15 years from now and say that was disastrously unproductive in the same way that in a uh, you know a post henry ford world we look back at the way we used to run our factories before the assembly line and say man that was a really slow way to build automobiles. So, so as, a, as a foundation <laughs> to this conversation, this is my conjecture. If you look, you look at, at any, any new economic technological revolution, so any time that revolutions in technology dramatically changes the economic landscape, what you see is this pattern of, at first, when we're first trying to understand these new technologies and these new industries, we tend to gravitate towards things that are easy and convenient it's too intimidating to try to tackle everything that's new about this new segment of the economy at first. And then over time, we get more sophisticated. That's what's happened with the Industrial Revolution. I think that's exactly what's going to happen with knowledge work. The very easiest thing we could do with the advent of front office computer networks, so email and Slack and the ability to, to move information around real easily, the very easiest reaction to that was just Let's plug everyone in to this hyperactive hive mind. Let's give everyone an email address that's attached to their name. Let's give everyone a Slack channel and just sort of rock and roll. Just have people rock and roll as the day unfolds. And we'll kind of figure things out on the fly with this ongoing unstructured conversation. That was the easiest thing we could do. We're ready to move past easy and into productive. And, and so I've sort of sidestepped your real question <laughs> to, make this, to make this point instead. But I think it's an important foundation for what we're going to talk about. The workplace today is hostile to depth. This is going to be a historic asterisk. But I want to first lay that foundation that regardless of whether or not people listen to me, I think the industry as a whole is going to shift in the future. Is there a chance that you're a brilliant and admirable exception? Our interactions when we we schedule this, you don't get going to email on a daily basis. You don't answer emails like mine on a, a regular basis. I, th I think your profession is probably to some extent suited, but you create this environment where you can cut yourself off and concentrate on things. I just wonder whether that's such an exception to the working environment that most people find themselves in. This cortisol-drenched work environment where they're, they're glancing at their phones the moment they wake up to see if there's emails from their bosses. I adore your optimism, but I just wonder if there are any signs that we're definitely moving in the direction you say. Yeah, I think so on the macro scale, we're moving in that direction. On the short term scale, the good news is it's the fact that we're getting there slowly is a huge advantage for people right now. Because that means that if you're one of the few to cultivate this skill, you're going to have an inflated value in the marketplace right now. The market will catch up to you, maybe 10, 15 years. Uh, but right now, there's a huge advantage to have if you're one of the weird ones who is actually prioritizing deep work over anything else. Now, I mean, to answer your question about what an individual could do right now to, to try to, to take advantage of this mismatch in the market, uh, I am probably more at an extreme to the point where a lot of people, a lot of industries couldn't replicate everything I do. So for example, even though I'm an author and a computer scientist, I don't have any social media accounts. Um, I'm generally hard to reach, I, I, and I'm pretty clear about my incoming communication channels, about expectations, about whether or not you should expect to hear from me and how long it might take. I sort of ignore most email messages. I, uh, I, I, it takes me days to get back to things if I do at all. I spend a large period of my week disconnected in states of deep thinking. Uh, so I can be a bit of a pain to work with. I say no to many things, <laughs> most things. I mean, for the most part, if it's not thinking deeply on one of the core things I do well, I'm, I'm, I, I tend not to be that interested in it. 
Um, so I am at a bit of an extreme, but I think there are attributes of what I do that are more generally adoptable than people might expect. It's worth caveating, isn't it, that you rarely work after six o'clock. So all this might sound like an incredibly disciplined approach, but actually it's at the advantage that you appear to have a, a full and healthy work-life balance. Yeah, it's true. I, I rarely work past... 5.30, especially on my uh, professor obligations. I always add there's some exceptions. I, I write a weekly blog post. I do it once a week. I do it at night after my kids go to bed. And when I'm book writing, I often get some good writing done on, on weekends or weekend mornings. But yeah, for the most part, I constrain my work to uh, roughly 8.30 to 5.30 window. Deep work makes this possible in, in a couple ways. One, because I prioritize depth. So the way I do it is every day starts with deep work. The question is just how long it goes that day. So on some days it goes pretty long and other days maybe it's just for an hour or two before other things happen. But that's just the default. I start by thinking deeply. Uh, deep work produces a lot real efficiently. So that's one way that helps me stay under uh, a 530 cap is I get a lot per hour spent. The other sort of larger way in which a focus on depth helps me actually constrain my workday is because by relentlessly focusing on very high value output. So the things that I think very intensely on and produce the highest possible value I can, that gives me leverage to reduce or manipulate or otherwise configure to my advantage a lot of the other stuff that eats up people's time. So the fact that I focus so intensely on deep concentration on building up valuable skills and producing high value output over the years has gained me more and more autonomy over what's in my life, what I have to do, what I don't have to do. So sort of a short-term, long-term advantage that a, a focus on depth gives you. I wonder if we could look at the methodologies then. And what I found most appealing to me was the journalistic approach, but you suggested that could be slightly difficult for, for people to adopt. Can we go through maybe journalistic approach or the rhythmic approach, the different methods you've got to incorporate deep work into real people's lives? Yeah, there's this, this observation you make when you study people who do a lot of deep work is that they almost always have a very clear philosophy for how deep work falls into their schedule, right? So, so they, they, there's different philosophies that work better for different people in different situations, but they almost always can tell you very clearly, this is how I integrate deep work into my schedule. So in, in my book, I talk about four different philosophies I came across in studying deep workers. So you have at sort of one extreme, the monastic philosophy of scheduling deep work, which is essentially all I do is deep work and try not to do anything else. This is generally not applicable to most people. Most people have non-deep responsibilities they have to do if they're going to make a living or keep their job, but you do see it come up often, typically in professional fiction writers, for example, where they sometimes can build this life where they essentially try to eliminate anything but deep work from their workday, just focus deeply on producing high value output. Another philosophy that you see then is kind of a little bit more on the realistic spectrum is the bimodal philosophy. Uh, this is people who have huge phase shifts in the type of work they do. So either they're doing no deep work at all, or they're in a phase in which they're doing exclusively deep work for one, two, three, maybe four days in a row. So they, they go back and forth between um, I'm here, I'm available, I'm plugged in like a normal person, and then I'm off the grid for three days. I'm off the grid for two days. The classical example of that I gave in my book was Carl Jung, the famous early 20th century uh, psychologist and thinker. He built this stone tower in the countryside outside of Zurich. So either he was in Zurich, you know, drinking coffee with Freud and seeing patients and going to lectures and, and doing all the, the sort of early 20th century version of the, the hyperconnected life, or he was in his meditation room in a stone tower with no electricity or running water, just thinking deeply. 
A more modern example is the, the professor and author Adam Grant, who told me how he does something similar with his research. He's either very available or out of office responder on his email and he's gone for three days working on research. He goes back and forth. Then briefly, as we go closer to the, the sort of less intrusive spectrum, you get the sort of rhythmic philosophy, which I think is the most common I see among professionals, which is set times on set days where you always do deep work, you don't think about it. So for some people, it's first thing in the morning every day. For other people, maybe it's Tuesday afternoon and Thursday afternoons, whatever it is that works. Uh, I'm starting to see more entrepreneurs, especially CEOs of small startups, doing what I call the monk mode morning, where they say, as far as anyone's concerned, I'm reachable starting at 11 a.m. or noon. And, you know, just I never am available for meetings. I'm never going to answer an email. I'm never going to answer the phone before it. And their whole organization just adapts to this idea that the first part of the day is depth day. The second part of the day is for other things. And the final one, as you mentioned, is the journalistic philosophy, which is where you, you in essence, tackle each week as it comes and say, when this week am I going to do my deep work? And it could, it could vary from week to week. This one can be a little bit dangerous if you don't have a lot of scheduling discipline, however, because if it's not something that's set in stone way in advance, people have a tendency to say, well, you know what, this week's pretty busy. Maybe I just don't have time for deep work. So those are the four philosophies that come up pretty, pretty often if you study deep workers. You say at the end of the book that a deep life is the best life you can lead. You say that success comes from scheduling every minute of your day. If you have an approximate schedule of what you want to accomplish, it seems that your productivity and using you and Adam Grant are perfect examples, your productivity and your output goes up considerably. The conclusion I scribbled down when I was trying to work out how you could adopt this was the example you gave there, actually. I don't think you included it in the book, but the idea that maybe there's an acceptance before 11 a.m. that we accomplish two hours of deep work before we then embark on the interactions and meetings and emails. Have you seen much evidence of people doing that? Yeah, it's starting to become more more common. What they're, what they're figuring out, which I think is an important point, is that if you have a lot of demands on your time and attention, which a lot of people in business do, there's a lot of meetings and phone calls and interviews and coffees, and there's a lot of demand on your time and attention. It's really up to you as the recipient of these demands to figure out your constraints on when you try to service those things. So if it's just, I'll just accept invitations or obligations as they come in and whenever we can find time, you're going to end up with a very fractured schedule. It's going to distribute randomly throughout your schedule. It's going to be very fractured. You're going to have very little time, large, uninterrupted segments of time left for deep work. On the other hand, if you add constraints, so maybe you do the monk mode morning, or if you're like me, I have uh, there's certain times in the week I know in advance where I, I'm going to schedule meetings and interviews. When these requests come in, you can shunt them towards these periods that you've already set aside for it. The people who are actually making the requests don't know, right? They're just used to like, hey, can we have a meeting or whatever? And you say, yeah, how about X, Y, Z? They don't need to know about what the, the bumpers are there, what the heuristic or background scheduling structure is. But on your end, it can give you much more control over your time and attention. So this idea of consolidating or batching interruption and distraction and meeting things that segment your time into smaller parts of your week is an incredibly powerful idea that I'm seeing uh, pick up more and more traction. The interesting thing is the unexpected consequence of these hacks, these solutions that people have. It strikes me that any time we see an example where people push back against the immediacy, the urgency of email, they tend to find, firstly, the email yields to that pushback. Secondly, they sort of achieve a state of greater happiness. One of the things I've read is that the single best thing that people can do is turn off the notifications on their emails, on their devices, because the removal of those punctuations, those interruptions on their own, that simple hack achieves an improvement in our mental well-being. 
You gave examples of the Boston Consulting Group who took a day's pause from digital communication. They took a pause in the evenings as well. It seems like every time we push back, email actually yields far more than we expect. One of the important uh, conclusions from that study at BCG, which was done by Leslie Perlow at the Harvard Business School, is that she found that the Boston Consulting Group, as well as many other organizations that she talked to and worked at, had these cultures of connectivity that were essentially arbitrary. No one ever sat down and said, what we need here at our organization is faster response time, more availability for communication. We need people uh, 24 hours a day to be able to answer emails right away. No one ever sat down and said, this would be good. This is going to make us more profitable. This is what we want. She actually uh, documented this emergent, unguided process by which these cultures arise within these organizations without any sort of guidance or intention. So, so what she found was that because they were emergent and unguided and without intention, they're much more malleable than people would expect. And I, I've seen this a lot in my own work when I, when I work with people to help, say, negotiate or work with their boss or supervisor about what role deep work should play in their schedule and, and how the company or organization can support that, is that a lot of people feel like these cultures of constant availability and communication are entrenched and will never change. And when they start to push back a little bit or discuss it or say, what can we do instead, they turn out to be incredibly malleable. These are not as strong or fundamental as people believe. It's, it's often emergent. No one ever decided this is a good way to work. And the good news is that means that you can push them around and try out a lot more new configurations than people actually expect right now. One thing I've really noticed that organizations more than ever before become their leader. So if you've got this enlightened pattern of communication and behavior at the organization, it tends to permeate the whole organization far quicker than ever before. If you've got this really stressed, demanding individual who works all weekend, then that can percolate across the whole the whole company. So hopefully your thinking, and the, and the book's been an incredible success, hopefully your thinking will start reaching the upper echelons of more organizations. I'm hoping so too. I mean, I'm already starting to see some of these some of these results where uh, you'll you'll hear from CEOs, for example, where someone will say, "Look, I have to." The, the story I heard the other day, some <laughs> CEO was telling me, um, an employee in a, in a town hall was like, "Look, I feel obligated. If you send an email, you're the CEO that I need to respond to this thing right away." And the CEO said, "Do you really think that I'm, in, in so many words, that I'm sitting here staring at my inbox?" like really worried and desperate for your, your response to come back. Like almost certainly I was just clearing some things out because I had some time. Where did you get the idea that it's really important that I hear back from you right away? And so I, I think when CEOs start talking about this and saying, okay, this is what produces value in our company and it has very little to do with constant availability on email. That does not bring in more dollars to the door. I think it percolates down. I mean, I, I've often said, if you put me in charge of Google, tomorrow. One of the very first things I would do would say, go to all of the developers and turn off their email addresses. Right? If I'm going to pay a lot of money and try to get 10x code out of world-class programmers, I don't want them distracted by an email from you know, the birthday party committee and HR that they feel obligated to respond to. You know what? If a lot of people are annoyed because they can't get through to them, great. Let those people be annoyed because annoyance doesn't hurt the bottom line, but them not being able to produce 10x code does. And I, I'm hoping we're going to see more of these large shifts as people come around to recognizing that deep work is what produces value for so many of these companies that are just based on human brains creating ex nihilo things that are valuable in the marketplace. Deep work is the key to getting the most value out of that context. Yeah, it's interesting. We don't even use the all the available channels 
open to us. Someone was telling me the other day that he set out on a journey and he discovered when he got to one of the transfer airports that um, his meeting had been cancelled. And someone in the office said to him, oh, we emailed you. He said, look, in every possible sense, that's a phone call. Someone just needed to phone him, not email him. And, and hope that he was going to be on some sort of Wi-Fi connection. We're not even using all the tools that already exist to communicate. I was chatting to another organisation today and they were saying, if you can get into this place where nothing urgent is communicated on email, then you stop having the need to check it all evening and all day. If you know something urgent is communicated on a phone call or on a text message, at least it changes your requirements to keep pulling your phone out your pocket. You actually hear that hack quite often, or quite successfully, where it makes it very clear Okay, if you need to reach me on something urgent, here is a phone number. For example, you call me at this number, I'll have it. And, and inevitably, when people do this type of change, they get almost no calls. But it does free them from this urgency. I mean, I often say, here's a very useful thought experiment. If you're trying to think about how to foster more effective work in a knowledge work organization, a very important thought experiment is, what would you do if you weren't allowed to have email addresses associated with people's names? You could still have email, you could still have other electronic technologies. We don't want to get rid of digital computer networks. But let's say you're not allowed to just have, you know, Bruce has an email address with his name that anything can go into. You can have email still, it could be associated with projects or, or certain teams or whatever, but no one, there's no inbox associated with people anymore. Once you start answering that thought experiment, often what people come up with is much more effective and efficient processes, processes that are really focused on producing the most value possible. They're more complicated than just having everyone chatter all day. There's more hard edges. There's more bad things that will occasionally happen. But, but often the types of things you come up with when you do this thought experiment are way more value producing than what we're doing now. If you couldn't just plug everyone into this constant chatter, how would you structure work? The answer to that question is almost always a better answer than what we're doing now. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I love the Neil Stevenson quote in the book, by the way, the, the idea that productivity of time is non-linear, as in like the, the more time you dedicate to something, actually it starts producing more output. Such a brilliant way to capture the benefits. Of yeah, this yeah, I, I love this quote. I, I wish more people would think that way, which is we're so afraid of, of inconvenience or small bad things happening. It's really missing the forest for the trees. You know, I mean, I often say like the assembly line is an incredibly inconvenient and annoying way to run a factory if you're a factory manager. I mean, it's much easier to do what they used to do, which is just this team is building a car over here and this team is building a car over there, but it's incredibly more productive. And so I just often think this is where we're going with knowledge work. I mean, once we shift our focus from what's convenient, how can we avoid something getting missed or bad things and instead focus on what's going to produce the most cognitive value you know, per man hour spent, I, I think we're going to see big changes. I love your optimism. Sometimes when you write at the coalface and you do, you're dealing with these pressures, these emails, it's difficult to actually believe that there is another solution. I guess the only reason why I sort of believe you might be on the right track is because I think a lot of people do feel exhausted and are at breaking point right now. There does seem to be sort of a critical mass being reached where people are just overwhelmed. So maybe, maybe you are right. The key is it's dollars and cents. So, so if I'm right, it's, it's going to be more profitable. To, to move away from uh, some of these cultures. And when we're talking profit more than anything else, that's a big driver in the market. So that's, that's really the source of my, my optimism is I think companies are going to start making more radical changes that more see the, the mind as the main capital resource and, and really does basically process, fact, process engineering, but on the human brain and producing value of the human brain. 
And once they do that, they're going to produce a lot more money and they're going to be a lot more profitable and their productivity in the economic sense is going to be much higher. And then I think it's uh, it's inevitable. Once someone's making more money off of treating the human brain more intelligently, uh, it's going to spread. And so that that's really where my optimism comes is the, you know, the market responds to <laughs> profitability. So if I'm right, at least about this being a better way to work, I, I think it's a, it's inevitable for that reason. Fingers crossed. I'd love to say That was Cal. I, I think, from my perspective, that has stayed with me. I've recorded 15 interviews over the summer. That interview has stayed with me more than anything else. The reason why it stayed with me is that I think this is the prize. Whatever job you work in, you'll recognise we want to get things done. In the last episode, we talked about the progress principle research by Teresa Amibli. You remember that, which is like people say they've had a good day at work when they've made progress on meaningful work. And if you're interested in that, I've linked to that and I've put her TED talk on the on the uh, page for that episode. People feel satisfied with work when they make progress on meaningful work. When I was at Google, it's interesting that like I mentioned at the start of the show, fear permeates everything. When I was at Google, Larry Page took over and and Larry Page had sort of been one of the founders of Google and Eric Schmidt had been uh, the CEO for a while. And then, and then Larry Page took over. I think he reached the age of sort of 35 and he said, right, I'm, I'm ready to run it now. But it's interesting what you, what you notice in those moments. Do you notice, even though this is one of the richest guys in the world, you notice a moment of impotence. And the, the moment of impotence was this. He was obviously scared that even though ostensibly he was in charge of this organisation, he felt powerless to control it. It's like, you know, organisations don't move like cars. They don't respond to simple mechanical shifts. And so he sent this email around, a remarkable act, but you often witness it with changes of CEOs. Remarkable act. He said, from now on, meetings are going to be speedy meetings. 30-minute meetings are now going to be 25-minute meetings. I mean, if you want to see the impact of this, what happens? Look, another lesson here. What happens when a leader makes these pronouncements? is everyone jumps to it. If you want to see proof of what I'm saying, this is 100% true what happened. If you're on Google Calendar, if you've got Google Calendar, if you go down, if you scroll down in your settings, you'll see that there's a setting that a lick spittle engineer created that week, which was you can opt for speedy meetings. And so what that will do, it will turn your 30-minute meetings into a 25-minute meeting. True fact, go and check it out. But what does that show? It shows that number one, He's got fear and that, bo- and that whole companies respond to that fear. And here's the problem. If we're trying to innovate work, then bosses telling us what to do isn't the solution. For me, thinking about how we can en- re-engineer our work to be more productive. That's why the, the number one point on the New Work Manifesto is presume permission. Presume you've got the permission to adapt things and change things. I love the I love the idea. After twenty five minutes, what what is a bell going off, Larry? How do we know that? We're, hang on, guys, guys, guys. Can you just stop? Larry says we're sort of going to wind it up now. Yeah, no, no, I know you're in the middle of a great story about your meeting this week, Pedro. As ever, do tweet me your thoughts. Uh, lots of responses this week. Well, one thing to shout out, I've got a few responses on the New Work Manifesto. So we, we put that out this week um, and some people replied saying it. Some people said this brilliant. Some people said this doesn't go anywhere near close enough. And I think that's my point in terms of we need to start somewhere. We need 
the New Work Manifesto is not an intention to get us to the promised land of the future. It's an intention to get us one step on the way to a far more reasonable way of working. They're very interested in your opinions there. Thank you for listening. Do share it. Next week, we've got Bidstone. The following week, we've got Emma Seppler. See you next time.